Hi, and welcome to Outside Influence, a podcast that explores how politics, culture, and media shape our outdoor experiences. I'm your host, Michelle Presley, and today we're talking about our relationship with the outdoors in the age of social media. So much of this conversation, though, is based on how social media affects us as people. So we'll start there and then work our way into how social media intersects with the outdoors. Maybe you've recently watched The Social Dilemma on Netflix and are beginning to question your relationship with social media. Maybe, like me, you're spending more time scrolling on your phone because it's one of the few ways you can still feel connected to others during the pandemic. Maybe you're relieved that Donald Trump is finally off of Twitter Or despite the toxic corners of social media, you're trying to grow your online reach as you start your own business or advocate for political reform after the election. Most likely, you're at the intersection of some or all of these realities. For a lot of reasons, the idea of critically considering our relationships with social media can bring about feelings of shame surrounding how we want to be spending our time versus how we're actually spending it. It can rip open the traumatic wounds of watching the effects of rampant misinformation on democracy. Or it can bring about the frustrations of having the desire to create more space between ourselves and these platforms, but feeling like doing so would hurt us professionally or damage our relationships with friends and family. These concerns and emotions are all valid. But what if taking on the full emotional weight of the consequences and engaging with these platforms that were designed to be engaging is an unfair burden on us? And perhaps engaging is even a bit of an undersell. Social media platforms were designed to be addictive, to keep us scrolling and liking and commenting and engaging, because it's our attention that is the most valuable commodity in this business model. What if we're being bamboozled? When I say we could all benefit by critically investigating our relationships with social media, I don't mean that we need to be searching for flaws in the ways that we, individual users like you and me, engage with these platforms. I think we all collectively already spend enough time doing that. I'm not here to propose that we leave our phones out of our bedrooms, turn off our notifications, delete our apps, or offer up any other suggestions that place the blame for the sins of an entire industry on our shoulders. Of course, I think some of these techniques may help us regain a healthy balance in our lives, but the solutions I think we should be looking for are bigger and go deeper than these individual actions. This is an opportunity to look for expanding circles and to fry some bigger fish. My intention with this episode is not to bring about more shame and frustration, but to arm land advocates with the knowledge to move toward a more ethical future for ourselves, the environment, and the technology we rely on to navigate the world. This episode will include a few key terms, and I just wanted to start by sharing the definitions I'll be working off of so we can all be on the same page throughout today's episode. First up is commodification. And that refers to the process of assigning a price to things that don't intrinsically have monetary value. So things like attention, time, or knowledge. Commodification describes that process, and the objects with the price tag stuck on them 
in this example, our attention, time, and knowledge, those are then commodities that can be bought and sold. Next up is commercialization, and that refers to the process of producing or managing something for the purpose of financial gain, selling commodities for profit. Last is neoliberalism, and yes, we're going there. <laughs> neoliberalism is the ideology that largely guides our lives here in the U.S. and the global north. Within a neoliberal system, market competition is assumed to be the best way to foster economic growth and distribute resources throughout society. Neoliberalism asserts that free markets generate competition and peak consumer happiness, and it places emphasis on the deregulation of markets, free trade, and property rights. So now that our key terms are out of the way, we'll start piecing them together by looking at how social media giants like Facebook treat users as commodities. This discussion, while a little Black Mirror-esque, will give us some handy parallels to examine how a similar phenomenon happens with the land. There's no better place to start than the attention economy. Lots of media scholars have examined the impacts of our attention being commodified by media corporations, finding that this actually happens all the time and is not particularly unique to social media. Think about the ads that play on cable TV or the ones you see in the newspaper. Viewers and readers are the metrics that matter to advertisers because those numbers indicate how much attention the goods and services being advertised on those platforms will get. Recently, this is extended to social media corporations like Facebook, Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, etc. All of these companies make their money largely by commodifying, that is, attributing a monetary value, to our time and attention, and then selling our attention to advertisers as a very profitable commodity. The more time we spend scrolling, the more ads we'll see and interact with. Over time, social media have become more commercialized, meaning that these social media corporations exist within the neoliberal context of prioritizing profits and generating maximum revenue. Gone are the MySpace days when we're all just here to have a good time. Nowadays, social media corporations employ sophisticated algorithms and interfaces, all for the sole purpose of catching and holding our attention. It is their ultimate profit-generating imperative to do so. This gets tricky with social media because when we spend our time interacting with social platforms like Instagram or TikTok, we're both a consumer and a commodity. It may seem like we're getting something for free with social media, and it's true that we don't have to pay money to have an Instagram account or to send a Snapchat. However, we are paying in time and attention, which is arguably the most valuable commodity in this system. Plus, we contribute our creativity and thought to these platforms. We contribute tons of content, the stuff that helps hold people's attention, for free. Instagram wouldn't be very fun to scroll through if there were no photos, and TikTok would lose its charm without all the cats and cowboy hats. Is that just my For You page? Anyway, I would argue, well, I am arguing, that it is imperative that we ask what we're getting out of the deal. Usually, if users amass enough views or interactions with their content, social media platforms do compensate them. Think of the TikTok creator fund. But usually, the content has to amass lots of views. And even then, most social media influencers' income 
is predominantly from direct relationships with brands, not the platforms themselves. And for most of us, these platforms will never pay us for the work and time we put into creating content. Every time we share a poem that we worked hard to write, a meme that we put thought and time into, however silly it might seem, or a story about our experiences at an event or with a product, we're providing an essential service to social media platforms and not being compensated. And yes, this is in the terms of service. And yes, most of us don't expect to be compensated for this labor because we don't consider it to be labor. But since the social media platforms we're spending most of our time on are valued in the hundreds of billions of dollars, it might be worth considering whether we should be willing to share our photos, stories, videos, art, and lives for free. Especially if our user data isn't even being handled properly. There's an adage that goes, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. In a lot of ways, that holds true for social media, because we're not paying money, yet a pretty essential part of ourselves, our attention, is being sold to advertisers. Some folks, like writers Derek Pawazek, have argued that this adage is problematic because it makes some assumptions, like, this is new or unique to the internet. Of course there was advertising-supported media prior to the internet and smartphones. In the news, on TV, on the radio, etc. Pawazek argues that there are ways to have a free product that is supported by advertising, in a way that still maintains respect for consumers. Even though some independent newspapers, like the one Pawazek mentions when he writes about this topic, have found a way to do this, I'm not sure what we can call social media corporations are doing to us respectful. I mean, a Facebook data breach in 2018 compromised the data of more than 50 million users. Plus, with more traditional mediums like TV and print, it's much easier to just turn them off or set them down than it is to disengage from social media platforms that are engineered by the best and brightest minds in technology to be addicting. Pawazek also argues that the phrase, if you're not paying, you are the product, assumes that if we're not paying, we're not complaining. Although I agree with his point that it's silly to suggest that just because a consumer isn't paying money for a product, that consumers have no right to advocate for better service or better working conditions for said company's employees. I disagree fundamentally with his claim that it's simple to walk away from companies that don't meet consumer standards or to change corporate behavior of some of the most powerful industry players we've ever seen. Once again, I want to interrogate whether we can realistically compare social networking apps on our phones to anything resembling traditional media. Smartphones have become a necessary part of daily life. There's a robust body of literature surrounding smartphone separation anxiety. There's even a word for it, nomophobia, the fear of being without your smartphone. There's also a deep body of literature that has found social networking sites like Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter can become like an addiction to users. And although people aren't being forced into agreeing to the terms of service, logging in, and scrolling, there is the fact that the corporations behind our favorite social networking sites have a financial imperative to keep us there. Plus, it's becoming increasingly expected for people to engage in social media personally and professionally. Finally, 
even though we aren't paying for the product with money, I believe it's still worth asking if there's a more ethical way for social media business models to be conducted based on the demonstrable harm that social media apps like Instagram have caused. I'll also raise the question, can our government even really effectively regulate social media to protect users? After Facebook's repeated mishandling of user data, the Federal Trade Commission wrote Facebook a ticket for $5 billion. Yes, $5 billion with a B. This fine remains the largest ever imposed on a company for violating consumers' privacy, and almost 20 times greater than the largest privacy or data security penalty ever imposed worldwide. It is one of the largest penalties ever assessed by the U.S. government for any violation. And it was one big slap on the wrist of Facebook, who was able to chalk that up as the cost of doing business. Whew, that was a lot. I think this is a good place to start drawing some parallels to social media's impacts on the land. Over the past several years, the conversation around social media's impacts on protected natural areas like national parks and forests have only grown, especially as social media platforms have gained usership and smartphone ownership has become more commonplace. I even wrote my whole master's thesis about how the news covers the geotagging debate. In this debate, two sides are anchored by those who believe that geotagging Instagram posts is leading to the demise of pristine outdoor spaces, and those who believe that geotagging and sharing information about outdoor recreation on social media helps to diversify and democratize access to the outdoors. However, both of these arguments center the individual user, you and me. They leave the role of social media corporations largely unexamined, completely ignoring if and how they should be held responsible when things go wrong. We already know that our attention is a commodity harvested by social media corporations and sold for a profit to advertisers. We also know that we're not getting a whole lot out of the deal, and that our government really struggles to regulate these companies when they mess up. Of course, we all have our own free will and can choose to opt out of using the social platforms, but our daily personal and professional lives rely heavily on staying connected, and giving that up is not as simple as it sounds. Plus, these platforms are engineered purposefully to hold our valuable attention, even at our expense. On social media, land is devalued in much the same way we are. Every photo of a mountain crest or golden hour selfie in a poppy field in bloom, every national park check-in, every TikTok at the trailhead, it all has something in common. The land. And that means when we're posting about public lands on social media, it's being used for two purposes. Our enjoyment and recreation, and as a commercial imperative for social media corporations like Facebook. What would these platforms be without stunning outdoor content? How engaging would they be for people who love the outdoors without our favorite social creators giving us tips for getting out there or sharing photos of places we dream of visiting? When Instagram states in their terms of service that they can use any photo posted to the platform for their own advertising purposes, that doesn't fairly compensate the person who took that photo, but it also means that Instagram gets to use photos of public lands for their advertising without ever paying for a commercial use permit. Who is standing up for public lands when demonstrable harm comes as a result of lax regulatory oversight on social media corporations? 
Who will hold social media giants accountable for the taxpayer dollars they're costing American citizens by allowing the proliferation of outdoor content that doesn't provide any warnings or additional educational resources that users could reference to have a safer experience? What if every time you clicked on a geotag, there was a link to information about the place you were visiting, or information about how to leave that place better than you found it? Recently, the debate of whether or not to geotag or even post outdoor content has been centered around individuals. The argument goes that each one of us following geotagging trends is responsible for places being, quote, loved to death. But we're also the ones paying entrance fees to support the parks. We're also the ones volunteering at trail cleanups or donating to foundations to support the crumbling infrastructure of our public lands. And let's not forget that the outdoors hasn't been the most welcoming place or accessible place for beginners, people of color, and women. Many of us go to social media apps like Instagram to see if there are other people who look like us at the places we're thinking about going. If not, it could be an unsafe environment we're walking into. But I'm also not here to praise Instagram or its parent company Facebook for democratizing the outdoors because that has been the work of people dedicated to using those platforms to achieve those ends. Meanwhile, Facebook profits hand over fist at the expense of our public lands. So what can we do? First and foremost, we can stop pointing the finger back at ourselves. It's not productive. With issues as big as land degradation, it's important to look for expanding circles of influence to make a difference. Think about it. If you, the individual, you decide not to go to the Grand Canyon because you want to lessen human impacts on the land, your individual decision wouldn't make much of a difference. Six million other people would still be standing at the rim over the course of the next year. But if we could advocate for more regulatory action when social media trends lead to land degradation, or lobby our representatives to allocate more funding to the management of public lands, we could really make a difference. Imagine a social media tax where social media corporations had to pay some kind of environmental fee to help clean up the mess that they've helped create. So geotag, or don't. Delete social media apps, or don't. But instead of shaming others for their choices, have conversations like this with your outdoor-loving friends. Look for the expanding circles, the outside influences. That's where we're going to leave today, but there will certainly be more conversations about social media, commercial use permits, corporate tax evasion, and more spicy outdoor topics in the future. It's impossible to fit it all in one episode. If this was a topic that you're interested in, please subscribe to Outside Influence wherever you listen to podcasts and share this episode with the outdoor lovers in your life. Perhaps ironically, you can also find me on Instagram at Michelle Goes Outside. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Outside Influence. I'm your host, Michelle Presley. Happy trails.